30. I invite you to open a Bible with me. If you don't have one, you can find a Bible under the seat in front of you. It's on page 860 in the Bible under the chairs. Luke chapter 4, verses 22 to 30. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. I love how welcoming our church feels when we gather here. And over the years of different churches I've attended, I've loved how welcoming churches feel. And the truth is they should, because the gospel is the most welcoming message that there ever was. And so a result should be the church should be the most welcoming place there ever is. However, I confess that in my own heart, there have been times that I have not been excited to gather and worship with certain people. People who rub me the wrong way or people who I'd rather not be around that particular day. And the result is that even though I'm a part of a church that is supposed to be most welcoming of all, I don't have welcome in my heart all the time. So I want to ask a few questions to myself and to you and say that you probably wouldn't think these things or admit these things in your minds, but perhaps you feel them in your hearts. Do you sometimes find yourself wishing that God would have saved this person instead of another person? Do you sometimes struggle to rejoice over someone else's salvation, maybe even in our community? Or is there someone, maybe someone who has wronged you, that you would not be happy if God showed mercy to them? Now, as I ask these questions, they're meant to expose our hearts. And the reason isn't so that any of us would leave in shame, but so that we we bring our hearts to Jesus and that he would heal them and make them whole. Now, as we walk through this passage together, Jesus is going to address and answer some of these questions. And it's going to be a roller coaster of emotion. 
first the people are kind of happy and excited about the stuff Jesus is saying. But give them a few moments, and they're going to try to kill him. We're going to walk through the passage and see why they respond this way. And what we're going to see is that the grace that Jesus Christ shares with us is offensive. Pastor Daniel made this point, which is that the grace of God is so scandalous, it's so ridiculous, that at a certain level, it can offend and anger us when God doesn't act and behave in the way that we expect him to. So let's begin walking through this passage by looking at verse 22. If you have a Bible in your hand, I invite you just to look down at it. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. So in the sermon we heard two weeks ago from the first part of this scene in the story, Jesus had stood up in the synagogue, which is kind of like a church gathering like this, but for Jewish people in the Old Testament, read the scroll of the prophet of Isaiah, talked about a new era of grace that was arriving upon God's people, and Jesus said, I'm the one who's bringing you this grace. I'm the fulfillment of this prophecy. And at first, it says that they marveled and they spoke well of him. They were excited to hear this word from Jesus. They were happy that one of their own was a prophet speaking the words of God. But that very same truth that he was one of their own also brought up an alternative thought in their mind. Wait a second. I saw this Jesus grow up right in front of me. I saw him become an adult. I saw him learn how to be a carpenter. Is he really saying that he's the one who fulfills these prophecies? Could he really do this? And so instead of accepting him, they're saying something in their hearts. They're saying, is not this Joseph's son? And Jesus is very attuned to the people he's around. Maybe he detected this is what they were saying. Maybe he knew it through the Holy Spirit. But he says he's going to give words to what they were saying in their hearts. And we see this in verse 23. And he said to them, doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. So now at this point in the text, we get into the first of two sayings that Jesus brings up. He's going to bring up two sayings that expose the hearts of the people. And then he's going to bring up two prophets that illustrate his point. So let's start out with the first of two sayings. Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. So what does Jesus mean when he says this? We see what he means in the very next words he uses to interpret this proverb. What we have heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. So Jesus apparently had healed some people in Capernaum. We're going to learn that he cast some demons out of them. And what they are saying is that, Jesus, aren't you going to do here in your hometown what you did in this other town? Jesus, don't we deserve for you to do here what you did in this other town? 
there's this sense where they start to see themselves as more worthy of Jesus performing miracles among them than the other town. They want Jesus to come and do these miracles among them. And I think if we ask ourselves, sometimes we feel as if we're entitled to the grace and favor of God. I know that I do. And I don't think that's a thought that would come into our heads. But I do think it's a reality that can be in our hearts. And here's the reason I say this. is because I can go emotionally off the rails when my day doesn't go how I expect. Or I can become envious or jealous of other people who God has given blessings to. So even though we probably wouldn't say that I'm like the people of Nazareth, where I have some sort of expectation that Jesus would give me blessings, our emotions will actually give us away. The ways that we respond to situations and people show that in our heart of hearts, we actually grow to expect and anticipate and even demand things from God. And we can become upset when we don't get them. He goes further. He has another statement here. Verse 24. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. You see that word acceptable in verse 24? That's actually the exact same word from verse 19. Verse 19 says he came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So what's he saying to his townspeople? He's saying, you're rejecting the favor that I'm bringing to you. You didn't respond with favor to the favor that I'm bringing. Why didn't they respond with favor? He brings up this saying that no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. I think you would agree with me, and it's true, that some of the hardest people to be a witness to are family and friends you've grown up with. Isn't that just the worst sometimes? The reason they can be the hardest to be witnesses to is because they've seen you when you've been weak. And people will so often prefer to dismiss the messenger than encounter the message. And so if they've seen you in a season of weakness, they're so less likely to listen to the message that you want to share with them. And Jesus was never in a sinful season of weakness. But growing up in their midst, in their company, he would have naturally gone through the weakness of adolescence and childhood, and they would have seen him. And rather than accept his message, they would look for a reason to reject it and reject him. Now there's something else that I find striking and amazing in this verse. Jesus refers to himself as something that starts with a P. What, what does he refer to himself as? Someone say it out loud. Yeah, a prophet. Now this is where I think things get really, really clear. It starts to get clearer why the people respond the way they do. He says no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. If you look back at the Old Testament, 
at the history of prophets, you can see why this is a saying in Israel at this time. God's prophets were righteous, holy men bringing God's message to an unholy, sinful people. And how do the unsinful people respond when prophets come to them with messages from God? They rejected them. When Jesus says no prophet is acceptable in his hometown, what he's saying to them is, you should think of me as one of the prophets who came with God's truth to God's people in the Old Testament. And you should think of you as like the Israelites, as those unrighteous people who rejected the message and the messenger. Your judgment about me is not correct. You are unrighteous in the way you are responding to me. This is the message that Jesus is sharing with those people when he shares that saying, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. So those are the two sayings. And now we're going to move on to the two prophets. And after Jesus finishes comparing himself to these two prophets, these people are actually going to try to take his life. So let's try to get into these verses and figure out what truth Jesus the prophet is sharing when he shares these verses. In verse 25 and 26 he says, But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land and Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Now if you're taking notes, this story takes place in 1 Kings 17 if you want to go back and read it. What happens in this story is it's referring back to a prophet named Elijah. And Elijah ministered in Israel in a time of particular unrighteousness and unholiness. There was an evil king over the land of Israel who was leading the people to worship Baal during this time. His name starts with an A. Does anyone remember what it is? Ahab, that's right. I think I heard that. Something close. So there's this king named Ahab and he's leading the people to worship the false god Baal. And God sends his prophet Elijah out outside of the boundaries of Israel to a pagan city named Zarephath to find a widow there with kids and to provide them with a never-ending supply of food. The reason Elijah had to do that was because the wickedness of the people had become so great that God had taken the rain away and there weren't crops to eat and there was a famine. So what's the point? What is Jesus getting at? If you read this, but in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only the widow in Zarephath. What he's saying is that since there was so much unbelief, so much rebellion against God, God sent Elijah outside of the boundaries of Israel, outside of the nation, to a widow from a city who did not acknowledge and worship God in the city. And this would have been very, very offensive to the Israelite people to hear. 
they would have seen themselves as the covenant people of God. They would have seen themselves as in an elevated place above the people of Zarephath. They would have seen themselves as the ones who would deserve for God to do something for them before he sent his prophet out there to go and do something for that person. So what Jesus is saying is that I sent my prophet to someone you did not expect me to. God sent his prophet to someone you did not anticipate for him to send his prophet to. And they are offended that the prophet did not come to them. And what he's saying is like, right now, right here in this situation, you people before me, you are like the Israelites who worship Baal. And the cities that I am going to, to do miracles where they're receiving me, they're like this widow who no one expected Elijah to go to. Who no one thought deserved God's favor. But he was sent there and he went there anyway. And God showed mercy to her. Now, as I was preparing this sermon, I was convicted that in a lot of ways, I can be like the people of Nazareth. What do I mean? I can expect God to save some people and not expect God to save other people. I can act and think like I haven't figured out. I can think about certain people and not think that God is going to save them and look at other people and say, that's probably someone God's going to save. I have a brother who probably none of you, maybe one or two of you have met. And he's this person who has no interest in spiritual things. And he's not a person that I often expect or think that he's going to become a Christian. And one thing I notice is that when I stop expecting someone to become a Christian, they drop out of my prayer life. And one question this text is challenging us today is, is there someone who God has put in your path who you don't expect to respond to the gospel so you stop praying for them? Are we like the people of Nazareth? Have we assumed that we figured out who God should bless and who God shouldn't bless and we're becoming upset or when he's acting the way we don't want him to act or we have stopped reaching out to or praying for someone we don't expect him to save? I wonder for us, is there a kind of person whom we intellectually would say we want to be in this room with us but emotionally we're not there? perhaps someone who's hurt and wronged you that you would not be happy if they repented and believed and became a Christian? What this text is doing is it's warning us about putting a limit on God's mercy. On us assuming that we figured out how God should act and who he should save and saying this person is beyond the pale. And while our thoughts would rarely go there, our emotions and our practices confess that we can be like the people of Nazareth when we stop praying for and pleading with and caring for certain sinners. Now that's not the only prophet and example that Jesus brings up. He brings up another prophet. Let's take a look at verse 26. And Elijah was sent to none of them 
sorry, verse 27. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. So Elisha comes after Elijah. They're not to be confused. They're two different prophets. Elisha was the student of Elijah. And he comes a few years later. And when he was a prophet, God actually sends this Syrian general named Naaman to come to Israel. Now, if you don't know what leprosy is, it's a disease of the skin that will actually eat away and cause your sin, or your, your sin to, your skin to decompose. And so it's just this terrible disease. And the worst part of it all is that as soon as you have it, you're considered unclean and you're not allowed to go into the temple and into God's presence. So this Syrian general comes to Israel looking for healing from this skin disease. And, and what we should note about Syria is that it's just not another culture that's different from Israel. They're actually historic enemies of Israel. So think of that. This guy is a general of an enemy nation, or a nation who has been enemies, and he arrives in Israel looking for healing, and this is what Jesus says. There were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Once again, there are many lepers in Israel. Many people who thought, this is a person whom God should heal of this skin disease. And God says, no, I'm not healing any of you. I'm going to heal this general from your enemy, from this culture you don't like, from this culture that you might even despise. Where does this text challenge us? This text is a radical call to cultural humility for all of us. It's so easy to be ethnocentric. It's so easy to dismiss other people who aren't like you. It's so easy to, when you are engaging people on a level that leads to ministry, to favor people who are like you over people who are not like you. I'm guilty of this. And while it might seem innocent or like a mistake or just something that just kind of happens, what this text reveals is that showing cultural preferences in our humility is subtly showing that we think certain kinds of people are more likely to respond to the gospel than other people. If we truly believe that the grace of God does not respect cultural boundaries and goes right through them, then so will we. But more gently than that, when we interact with people. We won't restrict ourselves to people who are like us if we really believe the gospel that we believe in extends to people who aren't like us. So Naaman the Syrian general shows that God is no respecter of cultures. God does not save just a certain kind of people who are alike. Instead, he saves people who are unlike us. So how do the people of Israel respond when they hear all of this? What do they do? Verse 28, when they heard these things, 
all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him up to the brow of the hill on which the town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. I want to try to put the pieces together so we can understand this. Jesus unexpectedly rises up and says, I am the one who fulfills the prophecy in Isaiah. They reject him. Jesus says, your rejection of me is like the rejection of all the prophets who came before me. And you're like them. You're like the prejudiced people in the time of Elijah who worshiped Baal. You're like the prejudiced people in the time of Elisha. And just like I took my saving benefits and gave them to others back then, whom you deemed less worthy than yourselves, I'm going to, today, Jesus says, I'm going to take my saving benefits from you and give them to people whom you think are less worthy or deserving than yourselves. And they become so enraged that they try to kill him. Their response to what he said should have been one of repentance at the truth. But instead it was rage. They're going to try to shoot the messenger instead of respond to the message. And all this brings me to the main point I want us to walk away with today. And that is, our God will be compassionate to whomever he wants to be. Not just to the people we want him to be compassionate to. I've seen God save a handful of people in my life, and guess what? He never asked me first if it was a good idea. And he's never going to ask me again, and he's not going to ask you your opinion either. And so, I challenge us all. Will we repent of our expectations that certain people deserve God's mercy more than other people? That certain cultures deserve God's mercy more than other people? And start to live as if this message truly is for every, all kinds of people. And truly li live as if we worship a sovereign God who does not ask our permission before he saves and rescues someone. Now you might be asking, Ross, what, um, what does this message have to do with me if I'm not yet a follower of Jesus? And I say to you, maybe today you come here and you're like the widow from Zarephath. You feel lonely. She didn't have a husband. You feel overwhelmed. She had to take care of all those kids on her own. And you feel hungry. She was alive in the time of a famine. But I doubt your hunger today is physical hunger because... We have a lot of ways to get food in this country. But maybe you have a spiritual hunger. A spiritual hunger that comes from feeling as if everything this world offers you is not enough. The good news that Jesus is pointing to is that Jesus loves to fill spiritually hungry people up. Just like that widow. Just like Elijah went to her and gave her an abundance that would never run out, he will give you an abundance that will never run out. Your soul will always be filled with him. He never runs dry. And some believers feel dry today. 
And Jesus is the bread that feeds our spiritual hunger. Jesus is what you're hungering for, even if you've forgotten. Maybe some of you are more like the Syrian general Naaman. When he came to Israel to ask for healing, the prophet Elisha told him to do something, and what he told him to do did not make sense to him. In fact, when he heard it, he became angry and said, this is not the way I would have expected God to heal me. So what does he do? He said, forget it, I'm out of here. And he walked away. And one of his assistants, his servants, caught up to him and said, hey, Naaman, I really think you should just give it a try. I really think you should just do it anyway. And he did. And guess what? He got healed. I wonder if you're here today, if you grew up in a non-religious background, this church thing feels weird to you, this Jesus feels weird to you, I've got some good news. Naaman was not healed because he fully understood God's plan or because God's plan was familiar to him. He was saved because he obeyed it anyway. So what's God's plan for you? Not that you figure it all out. Not that it make perfect sense. But just that you come to him in humble faith and repentance and ask him to forgive you and save you. I got a question for us. How is it that God can save widows from pagan cities? Generals from enemy nations and sinners like you and me? Let's take a look at verse 30. But passing through their midst, he went away. So when they came out to kill him, Jesus somehow confused their minds, or God confused their minds, and something happened, so Jesus was able to escape without harm. This event actually foreshadows a future event. There would be a time where an angry mob would come to get Jesus, and instead of just slipping away, he would let them. He would let them beat him and humiliate him and crucify him. Why would he do that? The answer is because he's taking my place and your place if you believe in him. Every single one of us deserves the judgment that Jesus deserved. And by not passing through that crowd, by letting them take him and hang him and kill him, he gives an opportunity to anyone to be forgiven, anyone to be saved who repents and believes in him. Maybe you say, I've done too much evil for God to forgive me. These examples of Jesus going to the least likely, furthest people from God show that there's no one God's grace can't reach. The question is never, will he have you? The answer to that question is yes. The only question is, will you have him? If you want to know more about Jesus, please talk to me. Any of the other pastors or members would be so happy to talk with you. And now I want to ask, how would our community change if we believed what this passage is teaching us?
Well, if, if we truly believe that God saves whomever he wants to and there's nothing that holds him back, we would pray for unexpected people to believe in Jesus, people we wouldn't otherwise pray for. And when we pray for them, we'll find ourselves more inclined to go and talk with them and share with them this good news and this Jesus who saved us. And when we go and talk and share with people, then some of them will believe and join our family. And then this place will become a place that's more shocking than it is right now. When more kinds of unexpected people come and worship the same Savior along with us. Notice that all of this starts with believing that God radically saves undeserving and unexpected people. If we don't believe this passage, we won't ever see a miraculous community. If we aren't cut by Jesus' words and humbled by Jesus' words, they'll never change how we act. Are you amazed that Elijah went to the widow? Are you amazed that Elisha went to the general? And are you amazed that Jesus is far better than either one of these prophets? They're just the junior varsity. They're just the warm-up. The Jesus we worship is the one who's better than Elijah and better than Elisha. And he's the one who sent you his Holy Spirit so that you could act like them. You could go to unexpected people and make disciples. Verse 30 also says something amazing. It says, he went away. Now that phrase, he went away, is actually from a Greek word that keeps appearing again and again in the Gospel of Luke. And it actually frames the Gospel of Luke as Jesus' journey from Nazareth to Jerusalem. When he arrives in Jerusalem, he'll take care of the biggest problem humanity ever had. Our sin and our rebellion against God. And all along the way, he'll be showing us who he is. We've seen the first glimpses of his glory in the beginning of this gospel. We've seen the first glimpses of a God who blows our categories and blows our expectations. Who does and saves amazing things in people that we would never expect him to. And as we keep walking on this road with him to Jerusalem, we're going to get to see him in action. This is just the appetizer. This is just the first episode in the series as we look and watch Jesus in action. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, I am humbled and I repent for my prejudice and my expectations of you and the ways that I feel like you're obligated to serve me or give me grace and mercy. And I ask that you break that in my heart right now and break that in so many of our hearts. And I pray that we would go to and witness to and serve people who would feel crazy to witness to and serve. And I ask that if there's any believer in here who feels too wounded, too much sadness or sorrow right now to even be on that mission, that the reminder that Christ sacrificed for them would be sufficient to heal them right now, bind up their wounds. And now, Lord, would you please not forsake us, but give us more of yourself as we worship you through communion, through giving, through praise and worship, 
and through ministry and everything else you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen.